This is Live Wired in Calgary. Hey everyone, welcome to the August edition of Live Wired in Calgary. I'm your host, Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. This show is done in partnership with the amazing team here at CJSW 90.9 FM and is recorded on traditional Treaty 7 territory. In the spirit of respect, reciprocity and truth, we honour and acknowledge Mokinsis and the traditional Treaty 7 territory and oral practices of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Siksika, Kainai, Pikani, as well as the Stony Nakoda and Sutina Nations. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. Finally, we acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work and play on this land and who honour and celebrate this territory. We have a super show lined up for you this month. We're going to talk about elections, COVID, and supervised consumption sites. There's a lot packed into each one of those. We have two longer interviews this month, combined with some smaller snippets in each area. This month, we'll hear from Deborah Yedlin from the Calgary Chamber of Commerce on their Pathways to Potential they released prior to the municipal election. I also spoke with Susan Elliott, communications manager for the Brad Field mayoral campaign and the Greg McLean MP campaign. It's about the collision between the federal and municipal elections and what kind of impact the dueling elections might have, particularly on the municipal side. There's a lot to talk about with COVID-19, including rising numbers and the desire to have a special meeting of City Council to discuss, among other things, the reinstatement of a mask mandate in Calgary. There's lots here. Stick around. Calgary businesses have had a troubling past four years. Not only did the bottom drop out of the price of oil, collapsing in its wake, the value of Calgary's downtown property values and subsequently raising non-residential property taxes. They've also had to deal with the on-again, off-again of the COVID-19 public health measures. Earlier this month, the Calgary Chamber of Commerce put out a sort of platform prior to the municipal election. In it were five areas of focus. Attract, retain, and invest in talent rebalance and stabilize property taxes, reimagine Calgary's downtown, create an inclusive Calgary for everyone, and make it easy to do business in Calgary. I spoke with Deborah Yedlin, President and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, about this plan. Why did the Chamber feel compelled to put together such a detailed platform prior to this municipal election? Well, we, you know, we ref- reflect the, the, the uh, voice of our, our members and we re- represent the business community. And these are some of the issues that we've been hearing. Uh, it's a comprehensive look at the issue, a representation of the issues that we've been hearing about from our, uh, from our members and from the business community generally in terms of what we need uh, for Calgary going forward uh, with, uh, with, with a new city council and new mayor. This, it is a very comprehensive plan because these are very... The pivotal time in Calgary's um, economic history 
and we need to make sure that we've got the right pieces in place to support economic growth and prosperity for all Calgarians. So what was the primary goal? When you go into these things, oftentimes, you know, you're thinking, okay, here's the here's the end goal. Obviously, it's business prosperity, economic prosperity. Um, but was there anything more specific that you had heard from chamber members, uh, other businesses in Calgary that really needed to be addressed with this platform? Well, you know, there's a number of things, and that's why we've sort of focused on five different areas. One of the top things, issues that we keep hearing about from businesses is our ability to attract, retain, and develop talent. So we need to be able to attract talent to Calgary. We want to retain talent in Calgary, and we want to develop talent through our post-secondary institution and ensure they're funded properly in order to do that. So that's one of the pieces we keep hearing. And when we talk about it from the perspective of economic diversification, this becomes even more critical because we need to attract people from other parts of the country, from around the world, who have skills that we need to help diversify, diversify our economy. And we need to be able to develop that talent within the post-secondaries. And we want people to come here. We want them to stay. We don't want them to be using Calgary as an, as an ATM machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want them to come to Calgary and work, live, and play, and not uh, look for other opportunities elsewhere. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing we've heard, of course, is about this, the property taxes. This has been an issue. Uh, non-residential property taxes have been going up, and the issue has been, of course, there's been a rebalancing act because we've had such challenges with downtown Calgary and the vacancies. And so that burden has shifted outside the downtown core, and we need to rebalance that in some way. And there's a couple of ways to do that, obviously. One is uh, from a residential standpoint, but also to really focus on rebuilding and revitalizing the downtown core, that it becomes more of a neighborhood. And so people live and work and play there as well. And so there's a vibrancy, but there's also a vibe that brings people back downtown and starts to fill up. It all it's, 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 it's a big circle. If we can bring talent here, if we can bring new sectors and new industries here, if they come downtown, we have a sort of a circle that starts to be self-fulfilling in terms of the, the property tax issue is mitigated. Uh, we have um, businesses that can be uh, viable downtown. It's, there's so many things that have to happen. And then, of course, we want to make sure that we have affordable housing and the right kind of transportation infrastructure and inclusion uh, in our city so that nobody's left behind because we know that there are certain demographics that have been left behind during this this recession and women and particularly racialized women and immigrants have had challenges. So we need to make sure that we have policies that address that. And finally, of course, we want to reduce whatever transactional friction is out there at City Hall so businesses can operate with ease and get things like permits and not have to face a lot of red tape. So, I mean, you, you'd kind of alluded to it there, um, you know, in talking about the downtown strategy in the in the five pathways um, and, and kind of when you get into them a little bit more, the attracting, retaining and investing in talent, um, rebalancing and stabilized property tax. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one a little bit more, but uh, the downtown, uh, creating an inclusive Calgary, uh, making it easier to do business in the city. It sounds like much of that work Deborah is already underway in some way, shape, or form at the city of Calgary. So would you say that there are big changes needed or do we just need to continue the progress, accelerate the progress? Um, How would the chamber view that? I think if we could, we'd like to to accelerate 
the pro the progress that's being made already. Um, you know, obviously, when you look at the talent piece, that's a longer conversation, and that takes a little bit more time. But I think you know the city has made headway in terms of reducing red tape and ex- expediting permit approvals, but it's still not where it should be. And so that's something that we're going to continue to uh, highlight as, as an issue that has to be addressed with the new council and the new administration. I wanted to ask you uh, about two specific issues. One, of course, is the non-residential property taxes. As you, I'm sure, are well aware, the city did, uh, I think a little over a year ago, kind of change the tax structure so that it was a little bit more weighted towards the residential property owner. But it looks like from the platform, uh, the chamber is advocating for even a greater balance of that shifted to the homeowner. it's a pretty, it's a pretty um, politically divisive issue, uh, raising taxes on homeowners or, yeah. you know, keeping them uh, a little bit higher for the businesses. Um, how did you guys navigate that one, realizing that there was going to be a little bit of political capital expended there in saying, we need homeowners to take even more of that tax share? Relative to other jurisdictions across the country of our size, we are actually at the higher end in terms of that ratio, the residential to non-residential uh, property taxes. And so, and meaning that the, the non-residential pays a higher proportion than the residential. And so that sort of, that was a starting point in terms of how we looked at the numbers. Is that number going to be achieved? I mean, that's obviously something that the city council and administration will have to work on. If Calgarians can see value for the tax dollars that they're paying and the services that they're getting, then you, and it's transparent and it's and it's visible, then I think you can have a conversation about what that should look like longer term. But the reality is businesses are suffering because of the tax burden and we have to look at ways to rebalance that. And this is one of the ways to do that because the, the, the unfortunate truth is we don't, you know, municipalities don't have a lot of levers when it comes to raising revenue. And so that's, uh, that's one of the things that we're looking at. But again, if we can solve for the downtown issue and get that vibrancy back and increase the property values and increase the occupancy rates in those buildings, then that starts to take care of itself as well. The last time I stood in front of you, I shared with you the plan to shift towards a more sustainable approach to COVID-19, where we could use an enhanced version of the public health systems that manage other respiratory viruses to also manage COVID. At that time, I promised you that we would closely monitor COVID-19 for a two-week period and adapt as needed before the remaining changes came into effect on August 16th. Throughout COVID-19, I have been committed to following the data and evidence And my team has been nimble, adjusting our recommendations as needed when the facts have supported it. Since I made my previous recommendations, I have been watching local and international data closely, and two items have emerged that have led me to recommend that we adjust our approach and defer the changes originally scheduled for August 16th. First, current non-ICU hospitalizations in our province are trending somewhat higher than we anticipated. Our initial modeling showed that at this time we would expect to have about 90 total cases in hospital. 
compared to 146 cases in hospital today. This is an increase of 62% over our projections. To be clear, there is no issue with hospital capacity. Anyone who needs treatment will be able to get it, either for a COVID-related illness or for an unrelated issue. However, it is important to take some additional time to monitor the situation. Second, we are closely watching the emerging evidence from the United States about pediatric cases with the Delta variant. The experience in the U.S. has been different from the information from the United Kingdom, which we used to inform our original decision. In the U.K., the Delta variant did not cause a different experience in children than previous COVID waves. Children under 15 remained the lowest risk of severe outcomes from infection. In the U.S., unfortunately, hospitalizations in children have started to rise, most significantly in states with lower overall immunization rates. It seems most likely that the reason for the difference between these two settings is the level of adult immunization which is protective for children via reduced household and other community transmission. In the UK, almost 75% of adults have received two doses of vaccine, while in Florida, one of the states where high hospitalizations have been reported in children, only 60% of adults have been fully vaccinated. In Alberta, at just over 67% of the eligible population fully immunized, we are in the middle of these two. Given this emerging evidence, I want to further monitor these trends. I do not share this information to cause alarm. To date, we have not seen a similar rise in severe cases in youth here in Alberta. Since July 1st, we have only had seven cases in hospital under the age of 18. However, it is important to monitor our trends in a consistent way and to continue to require cases to isolate while we do so. Based on these developing factors, I have recommended that we pause the next step in our transition for a period of six weeks until September 27th. That audio was from August 13th, the last time Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, spoke to media. Following Dr. Hinshaw was Education Minister Adriana Lagrange, who said that in-person classes would begin September 1st and they would provide schools with a health toolkit and also look at in-school vaccination programs across Alberta. The province didn't mandate masks in schools. COVID-19 cases have risen to a peak of 817 in a 24-hour period as recent as last week. Case numbers have stayed stubbornly high, above 500 for some time now. With the start of school next week, both the Calgary Public and Catholic School Boards have mandated masking in schools. Other schools such as the Foothills School Division south of Calgary, have only issued a strong recommendation to wear masks. The debate over masks has tipped into the municipal side too. Some municipalities, like Strathmore, have reinstated mandatory masking bylaws. Others, like Banff, have not. Banff, interestingly, however, is making full vaccination mandatory for employees. If they don't have the full vaccination by a certain date, employees are jobless. The city of Calgary, on the other hand, isn't going that far. In a release on Friday, the city said that it will delay its back-to-the-office timeline until after October 20th. 
They didn't talk specifically about mandatory vaccines. However, they did say that they are exploring a rapid testing system for those employees not fully vaccinated. If you read between the lines, uh, the city clearly isn't making vaccines mandatory for returning employees. The issue of masks, however, has become a political one. Councillor T. Gondek, who is running to be Calgary's next mayor, along with Councillors Drew Farrell and Giancarlo Carra, are pushing for a special meeting of council to discuss public health measures, including the potential reinstatement of a mask mandate. However, it appears that's where the support might end. A statement from the mayor's office sent to Adam McVicker from Global Calgary last week indicated that a special meeting could be requested if at least eight of the councillors made the request. That hasn't come, and it doesn't look like it will. Over at the LiveWireCalgary.com site, you'll see an article where we ask Calgary's mayoral candidates what they would do in this situation and whether a special meeting was warranted. You can check that out along with our growing list of candidate profiles under the Calgary Elections tab on our homepage. So at this point, Calgary's in a holding pattern. There's some talk that if council were to come back and defeat a potential reinstatement of the mask bylaw, that it would then require 10 votes to reconsider that decision. Now, that's getting a little into the political and procedural weeds, but it could prevent the mask mandate from ever coming back. This debate is certainly not over, especially if cases continue to remain high. Supervised consumption sites have been a hot-button issue in Alberta. The debate often pits harm reduction versus community safety. To address some of this, the province, who have systematically shut down the supervised consumption programs in Alberta over the past two years, created a set of guidelines to address some of the public concern and accountability. Last week, however, two groups, Moms Stop the Harm Society and the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society, launched a lawsuit to overturn some of these guidelines set to take effect in September. The groups have said these rules could push people away from the harm reduction locations and into using a loan where they may overdose and die. According to a CBC Calgary article, the province said licensing won't reduce access and that the rules would be in place for safety and quality for clients, staff, and communities. This conversation came up in a recent Twitter Spaces conversation that I host every Friday at 5 p.m. One person messaged me afterwards and said as long as harm reduction advocates continue to say those concerned about community impact don't care about people dying from overdose, we'll never be able to advance the discussion. This person said, why can't we do both? Why can't we have a plan for community safety, social disorder, records management, and still save lives? It's a great question. Why can't we? Right now, this debate turns into a zero-sum situation, and until we can break through that, the harm reduction advocates are right. More people will use alone, potentially overdose, and maybe die. But that's because the services aren't available at all. One of the worst-kept secrets finally saw the light of day this month. A federal election will go ahead on September 20th. 
Already this campaign, Justin Trudeau touched down in Calgary to help Calgary City Councillor George Chahal with a campaign rally in Calgary Skyview. Here's a snippet from that event. Good evening, everyone. Bonsoir, mes amis. Namaste, satsriakal. Salam alaikum. Bonsoir. What a pleasure to be back in Calgary. What a pleasure to be here besides your extraordinary next MP, George Chahal. You all know George. He has been there for you every step of the way, fighting for you, standing up for you, making your community stronger and safer, being your voice at City Hall. And now you need him and you get him to be your voice in Ottawa. As I mentioned, the federal election date is September 20th. That happens to be the nomination day for the Calgary municipal election. The concurrent campaigns have some people talking about information overload, confusion among voters, and potential political fatigue. I spoke with Susan Elliott. She's the communications manager for the Bradfield mayoral campaign in Calgary's election. She's also with the Greg McLean campaign for MP. We talked about the impact this crossover would have on campaigns and on voters. When you initially were planning out the Bradfield campaign, was the specter of a federal election always a part of the game plan? Yes. Um, Going back to the spring, um, and Brad officially got into the race in January, but even as far back as January, uh, those of us who are also involved federally knew that there was a prospect of a federal election sometime in 2021. Uh, At the time, we thought it was probably going to be a spring election, uh, but then we went into a third wave and the vaccine rollout was kind of iffy, and so uh, we foresaw it being pushed back to the summer or the fall. But all along, we've we've had it in our head that we were going to have to compete with another level of government selection. And so tell me, how did that affect the planning, first of all, but then maybe kind of get into some of the more specific things, like like what what kind of impact does it have on a campaign? Well, and it depends on the timing. Had it been called in the spring, for example, we were going to defer the rollout of our lawn signs until after the, the federal election so that we wouldn't have lawn sign wars. Um, when the uh, spring election didn't come, we decided to go ahead with the lawn sign rollout, and now that we're well into it, we're just going to keep on going, and people will. People are smart, right? They can tell the difference between a, a yellow Brad Field sign and a blue conservative sign or a red liberal sign. So uh, we're just going to keep on going. Frankly, coming as it does now, the federal election, actually gives the municipal candidates a bit of an opportunity for a reset. And what I mean by that is that uh, we've been competing for airtime uh, for quite some time now with, with, a municipal, with municipal journalists that haven't been all that engaged with the municipal campaign. And I, that's perfectly normal. I'm not, I'm not trying to be insulting. We have been trying very hard, especially those of us who are not incumbents, uh, to get some airtime. The airtime now is going to go to the feds, whatever we do. So it's an opportunity for us to reset our ground game. 
and by ground game, that's, I guess, jargon, but what that means is door-to-door campaigning and lawn sign campaigns and attending events and that sort of thing, things that don't require media attention. So in your experience, I mean, you've obviously got experience working on both the federal and municipal campaigns. To your knowledge, has there been anything like this happen in the past where a municipal campaign has conflicted with a federal campaign? Uh, or, or is this sort of like everything else over the past 18 months, a little bit unprecedented? You know, I, I'm not a historian, so I couldn't say for sure that it's never happened. Uh, but I don't recall an occasion where I was engaged uh, into it once like this. A lot of candidates have mentioned, oh, now that the federal election has has launched, it's going to take all of the oxygen out of the municipal campaign. And some are debating whether or not this is an opportunity for them to, I, you kind of use the word reset, um, but some of them have gone as far as to say, you know, go dark a little bit, you know, kind of take a breather. They've been out at dog parks, doing door knocking, that sort of thing, kind of step back, you know, maybe maybe reset, refocus themselves. Would this be an opportunity for candidates to do that? Or do you think that it's got to be pedal to the metal right through this federal election? Well, incumbents might feel differently because they already have lots of name recognition. But for a newcomer candidate, we can't afford to, uh, to take a step back. As I say, we'll probably reset a little bit by focusing more on the ground game and less on the air game. Uh, But we're going to, we have to keep going. You know, voters are smart enough to know the difference between a mayoralty candidate standing at the door and and a candidate to be an MP. And uh, they may get tired of answering the door, uh, but they know the difference. Now, on that note, Susan, do you believe that there's a little bit of a, maybe a risk of voter fatigue here. I know that you had, had suggested that the that the typical voter is smart enough to differentiate between the two. But what about when it's not a question of differentiation, but a question of information overload? Is, is there any concern, do you believe, on the part of campaigns that this might become a problem, that we're going to go right from a vote into essentially a mad rush over the you know, next 30 days um, into another election? I think there is a risk of that. I think you're right to ask the question. Uh, But I would make two points. Uh, The first one I would make is a little bit delicate, but that is that in Calgary, there are probably only three or four ridings where the race is really competitive um, and where um, people will be really focused on their choices. Um, A large part of this city, um, gosh, I don't want to take anything for granted, but in a large part of this city, people's federal voting intentions are probably already decided in many households. The second point I think I would make is that municipal issues are the issues that are closest to people. They're the issues that they care most about, that, that, that affect their daily lives. Um, we're going to have... Uh, uh, a, a, a referendum vote, pardon me, on, on fluoride, for example, which is one that gets a lot of people really worked up. Uh, people are very concerned about 
Calgary's economic recovery, and that really is in many ways a municipal issue more than a federal issue. They're worried about jobs. They're worried about the downtown. They're worried about keeping young people in the city. All of those things are far more municipal issues than federal issues. So I don't actually think the federal campaign is going to elbow those issues out of the window. On the contrary, in fact, I think you might find MPs getting questions at the door about things that are municipal issues. I do admire Elliot's optimism about voters and their desire to go through more than two months with two different campaigns of political theater. I have to admit, my perspective is a little bit different. Perhaps that's because, as a journalist, you sometimes live, eat, and breathe the nuances of the so-called political theater, and it can be overloading at times. My worry is the federal campaign will overshadow many local campaigns, just as some of them are getting off the ground. And will voters have the appetite to hear people on their doorsteps after the peak of the federal election? We have just less than two months until Calgary's municipal election. We'll see what impact there is on the local vote when the federal one concludes. That's it. Another month is in the books here at Live Wired in Calgary. I want to thank Susan Elliott and Deborah Yedlin for speaking with me this month. And thanks to you for tuning in each month. We appear at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the fourth Monday of every month right here on CJSW 90.9 FM. And we hope you continue tuning in. Before we go, I'll just put a little bug in your ear about the upcoming CJSW fundraising drive. Not sure of the exact details, but keep it on your radar. Community radio is an important part of Calgary's social fabric. Until next time, so long. (laughs) 